With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Chanae Ogwumike. I'm Lisa Leslie, and we're very excited to tell you about our new podcast with Blue Wire, Front and Center. Lisa and I are breaking down what's going on in our lives, in the world, and keeping it 100. We're also learning from amazing guests as well, like Emmanuel Acho. People that show love to me, I forever got their back. Vivica A. Fox. If the foundation isn't right, then the rest of it's going to go wrong from there. And more. Subscribe to Front and Center today. All right, welcome back to the Limited Upside Podcast. This is the voice of Ben Epstein. Mike Prada is not with us today. He's actually celebrating the birth of, a, of his baby boy. Mike had his second child earlier this week. We're pleased to announce everyone is, is happy and healthy. And Mike is tending to things more important than, well, this is going to be a NBA draft preview episode. And uh, going back a little bit of an homage to where this all started, the Limited Upside was an SB Nation podcast. A lot of the folks we used to have on were just the people we were shooting the shit with in the office. And nobody knows more about college basketball, the upcoming draft, no matter what year it is, even in a pandemic, uh, than Ricky O'Donnell, SB Nation's very own draft guru. And so I'm pleased to announce that I was able to get Ricky to cut through his very try, uh, trying and difficult schedule here as the draft kind of just sprung upon us immediately after the NBA season finished. Uh, and Ricky is joining me here uh, for this draft preview episode of The Limited Upside. Ricky, how are you? You're giving me way too much credit, man. I really don't have that much to do. So I'm good, Ben. Thank you for asking me to be on. I'm happy to be here. And uh, yeah, we have this conversation every year. It's always fun. So let's uh, dig into another draft class. That's awesome. Yeah, sounds good. I was gonna say, maybe you've had extra time here to prepare. Maybe, I don't know, an extra six to eight months potentially. Uh, but uh, cool, man. I will dive into it. I know you've probably been getting, I would say, a number of questions pertaining to the irregularities, right? This is not your normal draft. We didn't get to watch a lot of these guys play in March Madness, which might help. I, I want to know from your perspective, the way that teams are observing the talent in this draft, do you think it has, and then we'll get into the players, but do you think it has helped or hurt that we don't have that caveat of, well, they played great in the NCAA tournament. There's none of that immediacy that goes into this. It might be even more about how well did you core scout these players? How well do you think that they translate? Tell me about how teams are approaching a very unique draft, Ricky. Yeah, for sure. I think we won't actually know until five or 10 years down the line when we look back at this draft class and we'll see if there are fewer busts or, you know, more guys who go in the range they're supposed to. But I definitely think there's a chance it could be beneficial. It seems like every year there's a guy who rises way too high up the board because he had a really strong NCAA tournament performance. Uh, like, does DeAndre Hunter go number four last year where the Hawks are making sort of an all-in trade to shoot up the draft board to get him? Uh, if 
he doesn't, you know, lead his help lead his team to a national championship with Virginia. So uh, I think that, you know, there, there could be something to be said for the fact that we don't have these key point events to overreact to, whether that's the NBA draft combine, the NCAA tournament, uh, even the private workouts. So, you know, you know, how much are you really going to learn from a guy in a one on oh empty gym workout? So to me, I've always put the most stock into the games themselves. Mm. Uh, so I don't think too much of my evaluation process has changed in this, but it will be really interesting uh, to see how some guys draft stock is affected. Certainly like a guy like Obi Toppin, I think uh, he still might be a top five pick for sure. That's the buzz right now. But mm-hmm. uh, I thought Dayton had a very good chance to win it all. If there would have been an NCAA tournament, I think Obi Toppin, you know, potentially could have gone even higher. Maybe we're talking about him as a top two guy right now. If he wow. leads Dayton on an inspired run through the tournament. So uh, sure. it's a lot of hypotheticals, but I think uh, you're absolutely right that that will be sort of a new wrench in this whole equation. Totally, totally. And I guess another, you know, a sidebar of that new wrench is a couple of the top prospects in this year's draft didn't play college basketball and not in a traditional, they're European players playing professional at 16, 17 years old. Uh, but you know, RJ Hampton and, and LaMelo Ball played in the Australian NBL, uh, an up and coming professional league. I don't think one of the two or three best leagues in, in international hoops, but nonetheless, these are guys rumored in, in Ball's case to be a top one, two, three pick, uh, arguably consensus one at this point. Um, and then in RJ Hampton's case, an incredibly well-regarded high school player who made that kind of unusual, but becoming more common move to go play overseas and forego college. Talk to me about what you know about both of those players. Let's, you know, we can spend almost less time on ball uh, because I feel like there's going to be enough coverage of LaMelo and we've already had plenty, but a little bit of what you saw from him that you like, what we should be scared of. And then talk to me about RJ Hampton. I feel like every single time I see something on RJ Hampton, he is either getting heaped of heaps of praise or shot down so that he should be somewhere in the mid twenties. And I really don't know where he lands with me. I've watched a decent amount of his called YouTube available video, uh, as well as going back to see his high school stuff. Cause I wanted to have that impression in my head again, before we talk. So give me more on RJ, but start with ball. All right. So for LaMelo, uh, I guess, you know, the 10,000 foot overview, I think he's the best talent in the draft. I would take him number one overall. Of course it depends on your team fit, but I think like if you're a really bad team, who's picking at the top of the draft, most likely you don't have that like offensive engine that you could run everything through uh, is a full-time playmaker creator. Obviously the nature of the point guard position has changed. You look at the guys who led the league in assists this year. I think LeBron James was one and Luka Doncic was two. Those are not like your tiny little floor general types. (laughs) The idea of the pure point guard is sort of out the window. And now you kind of have these big oversized offensive creators to me, LaMelo is the best of both worlds because he is a pure point guard and he's also maybe six foot eight. We don't have a good measurement on him, but uh, he looks six, seven or six, eight. So I think that, you know, LaMelo has a few things really going for him. One, he is a super tight handle. Like whenever you see a guy in the draft who's six, seven or six, eight, I feel like the knock on him is always, well, if he improves his handle, he could be pretty good. Well, LaMelo's already got the ball on a string. So I think that, you know, that's something he has that even separates him from his brother and that I think could like help make him a really good prospect. The vision is absolutely elite. The passing skill elite. Uh, He will throw passes that do not exist, that no one else would see that no one else would try. They do not always work, but I think that, you know, he sort of has this creative brain that he's playing with. In addition to having all these really impressive physical attributes that I think makes him the best player in this class. Now, you know, 
I would typically feel more comfortable taking a guy like him at number five overall or number four overall and not number one. But the nature of this draft class is there's not really anyone who's more appealing than him, at least in my opinion. In terms of worries for him, I actually think his defense is going to be better than most people do just because he has such a great size advantage on most other point guards. I think that'll give him some defensive versatility. He's got a good nose for the ball as a rebounder. His brother's a very good defensive player early in his NBA career even though in general he's kind of been uh, a little bit disappointing thus far what I worry about from LaMelo's perspective in terms of uh, the big knock on him like how efficiently is he going to be able to score in the half court and if he can't score efficiently in the half court how valuable is his playmaking going to be you know the defense at least has to account for the threat of LaMelo finishing the play when he breaks down the defense and gets into the paint so uh, that's my worry with him you know is he going to end up as even a league average true shooting percentage guy or is he going to be someone who's like 51 52 percent and then even if he has the talent it's like uh, how good is that guy really going to be long term? Uh, but I would bet on Lamelo. Why not? I mean, there's there's no one else in this class I would take over him. I think he just has the best creation ability. So to me, Lamelo number one. R.J. Hampton's really interesting. So Hampton, as you alluded to, he was a five star recruit out of the Dallas area. He was he reclassified late. So he was considered like a rising junior. And then he announced he was going to reclassify that he had finished his high school courses. And then he was making a choice between like going to Kansas or Memphis or going overseas. And he chose to go Mm. overseas. I think that was a really good decision for him. And for most kids, because for one, you get paid right away for two. I feel like you avoid the harsh spotlight of underachieving in college basketball, where like, Everyone sort of knows where a five-star recruit one-and-done guy should be in terms of production if they play in the Big 12. But if you're playing in Australia, it's like, well, he's playing against grown men. Like, we don't yeah. we don't really know what we can do right now. So I think that was a really smart move for him personally. Uh, in terms of his game, I would describe him as an aggressive rim attacking guard. I think that that's yeah. mostly his game. I saw him play live uh, at... It was in Indianapolis on the Under Armour tour. Every year I would go uh, take an AAU trip, and he was one of the guys I saw. And I hope he won't mind me saying this, but I saw Mike Schmitz from ESPN. He was at the same event I was. And that just offhandedly we're talking. I'm like, oh, what do you think of uh, RJ? And he's like, ah, he's got some shit to him. Like, he's just like an aggressive player. You know what I mean? So I don't think that he has the totality of the skill set you're really looking for in a lead guard. I don't view him as being like a LaMelo ball or Killian Hayes type of guard where I think like he can be the lead creator or the the lead offensive engine for a team. Mm -hmm. But he has a lot of things he's good at. He can definitely get into the paint and beat a guy off the dribble. I think that he has the size to play either position. I think his aggressiveness also translates defensively. Now, like how good of a passer is he? How good's his vision? How good's his jump shot? These are all absolutely legitimate questions. So to me, Hampton, I would not take him in the lottery. I think that he's probably like, you know, I would feel good about him in the early 20s and decent Mm -hmm. about him in the teens. But, you know, the sales pitch on him is basically he's an aggressive guard who tries to get to the basket. He's pretty athletic. He's really young. He certainly is one of these guys where it's like, you know, the player they are today is not the player they're going to end up being five, 10 years from now. So yep. I think that he has some foundational skills he could build on. So if you're looking for an upside bet, that's a decent one to me. 
but I just don't see, you know, the, the full totality to be a lead guard eventually. Got it. Man, I'll, I'll juxtapose him to some of the other guards uh, that are going to likely go in that top 20 a little bit later on in this podcast. But that that's fascinating, too, just to kind of hear your take on. I mean, look, you're a, you're a talent evaluator. The the world of evaluating. Ah, that's a that's a good way to describe me. Come on, man. It's true. Uh, the world of evaluating talent is changing rapidly. This idea that the G League is going to be promoting these 18 year olds in a way now that is similar to the folks going over to Australia or playing overseas. The College basketball is slowly but surely and probably for the better losing its grip on, you know, the control of, of anyone post that first, you know, first year of uh, after high school or post, you know, whatever we call it, your fifth year um, program. I think it's I think it's fascinating. I also think it's going to create uh, a lot more. In, interesting decision-making on team sides, how you evaluate. To your point, a team in the 20s can take a guy like an RJ Hampton knowing they don't need him to be even a rotation player necessarily if they're a team in the 20s who might be a you know potentially a playoff team. Uh, maybe I'm thinking Nuggets or a Heat, a, a good team who could afford to build that foundation around him. Um, so that's, that's fascinating. I, I, you mentioned he could be a bit of a sleeper. I also know that from following you, extensively on Twitter and having our conversations as we do, the Killian Hayes comes up a lot. I also noticed that you have him in your last mock draft going to a team that's near and dear to your heart. How much of that mock draft is that you think he is the fourth best prospect or even maybe potentially higher or that you would actually like to see him land uh, in Chicago uh, for your, for your bulls. I will talk to me about Killian Hayes. I know he's a name that a lot of people are hearing, but that very few people have seen. For sure. So to me, if he were on the board for the Bulls at four, he is both the best overall player and the best fit. So to mm. me, this seems like a no-brainer. Now, the big divide is that, uh, let's say, armchair analysts like myself view <laughs> him much more highly than apparently NBA teams do. Mm. So there is talk. In, you know, in the initial post-lottery uh, Draft Express mock draft, and I think John Giovanni is definitely the best sourced person in terms of what teams are thinking ahead of the draft. Sure. Uh, he had him going 14th. Wow. Now, I would view Killian Hayes as probably the second or third best available prospect overall. I really like Killian Hayes, but NBA teams do not view him as highly. So, you know, I could go into what I think of him. I guess the reason I like him is that I view. Yeah. Tell uh, me about that split. Tell me, tell me about where yeah. you split with it. Yeah. So I view creation as just super, super valuable. And I think, uh, you know, a team like the Bulls in particular, it's just such a glaring weakness on the team because when you don't have that lead creator, what happens? That burden has to fall to someone else who's not really apt to do it. Uh, in the Bulls' perspective, that's Zach Levine. Now, Zach Levine's a really talented player. He averaged, I think, 25 a game on pretty good scoring efficiency this past year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in terms of, like, being the guy who's going to run the pick and rolls every time down the floor and run the isolations every time down the floor in the half court, he's just not enough of a high-level decision maker on a consistent basis to lead you to have an efficient offense. And, by the way, the Bulls had the second-worst offense in the NBA with Zach Levine at the controls. Now, I think that, you know, if you put Zach Levine in more of a Clay Thompson role instead of, like, trying to shoehorn him into the <laughs> James Harden role, I think he could be a lot better. Like He does have some very unique talents as a scorer so absolutely uh yeah i think that like you need that creation ability and i already you know praised lamello i think lamello offers the most creation ability in this draft and i think behind him is killian hayes and that's why i have killian hayes is you know probably the second or third best overall prospect in this draft now uh in terms of like 
how high is his upside? If you want like a comp, and I don't really like doing comps, but just like a rough idea of a guy who he could be like, maybe Malcolm Brogdon, someone who I would say uh, in terms of Hayes, like I would say he projects as a positive on both ends of the floor. A lot of the guys in this draft do not project as above average mm-hmm. on both ends of the floor. So that's something Hayes has. He's definitely not someone who's going to blow by you with a super quick first step and yam it on your head at the rim above the rim. Uh, and in terms of his shooting, that's that's really where this Brogdon comparison falls apart because Brogdon, yeah. of course, had a 50-40-90 season. As yeah. an off-ball shooter, he was really good. Killian Hayes, strangely, is a much better off-the-dribble shooter than he is a catch-and-shoot guy. Huh. So I think like you almost got to play him on the ball. Hopefully the catch and shoot spot up numbers are just an aberration and you can kind of fix his mechanics and you know that sure. can just be like a little fine tuning uh, that can unlock that part of his game. But I don't really care about the lack of elite explosiveness. I think that like the more important thing for a lead guard is just being able to change speeds and knowing angles. And Hayes is just a really high IQ player, in my opinion, on both ends of the floor. He's also sort of built like a tank. I mean, he's only 19 Hmm. years old, so, you know, his body's still developing. But I think, like, down the line, he's probably going to be pretty jacked. He's probably going to be hard to get the ball away from. He's not going to be super fast, but I think he, you know, sort of understands how to dictate uh, the terms of his drive against the defense. Very good passer. Uh, The thing about him is that he is super left-hand dominant. So he can't Hmm. really go right or finish right or spell his name with his right hand probably he can't really do anything with his right hand uh also he's 19 years old so it's like you got to bet on someone i i feel better about betting on him uh than some of the other guys in this class so that's why i view him as one of the top two or three best talents of this draft mm-hmm. in terms of why the scouts are knocking him well he shot 29 percent from three and he's not fast or explosive sure. around the rim so you know I think that maybe NBA teams view him as someone who like, yeah, maybe he could be a creator, but like, is he going to be a good one? And if he's not good, how valuable is he? If you just got to get another guy uh, to go to that spot. So I would bet on Hayes, but uh, certainly, you know, if he does not become the on-ball creator that I think he has the potential to become, then he's probably less valuable being an off-ball guy because of his spot-up shooting deficiencies. So that's kind of the discussion around him entering the draft. And what league? What league was he in again? In the, I believe, the German league. Uh, okay. For a team called Ulm. Ulm. Yeah, I saw that. I, I was going to try to pronounce it, but I wanted you to take the lead on that. Uh, that could be anything. Ulm. Um, cool. Yeah, it's fascinating because I think about the way that, and I'll use Luca as the example here, but that athleticism can go in a lot of different directions. Luca is not. He's a good athlete, actually, uh, because athleticism is a skill, is an athleticism. Uh, athleticism is a skill, vice versa, et cetera. I think Prada says that all the time. Being very good makes you athletic, too. Uh, I always try to remember uh, or I think a lot about, uh, you know, the, the dopier guard, the Andre Millers of the world, who if your top speed is 50 miles per hour, but you go at 10 all the time, there's still a 40 mile per hour gap there. There's still acceleration to be had. And so how you use your speed, Brogdon's amazing at this too. And he's square. I mean, Brogdon's a very strong guy in general, but he's great at getting his shoulders square on people. He's a, again, to your point, a really good shooter from all around. And I think has kind of gravitational pull on the court because he's such a good shooter and that creates more space. And with space, you can have limited athleticism that goes a lot further. I'm always curious when a guy is so young like this. So Hayes last played at 18 years old, apparently, in uh, overseas in Germany. Uh, how, oh, sorry, one second here. I'm just going to make my dog uh, quiet down. She's a big draft fan. All right. And, uh, and so anyhow, it, a lot of what I think about is 
athleticism is not something that is easily seen when the people around you are professional adults already. Uh, to your point, growing faster, stronger, all those things. NBA play teams can bet on strength and conditioning. I think we're seeing that already. A guy like Lonzo, for example, was is a lot stronger physically now than he was when he came into the league. Um, and that's just a very small example. But there's a whole group of there's a whole group of guards that I feel like have, at least in what I've been reading, more negatives against them than where I'd like to see positives. A lot of criticism. And I'm going to give you that kind of tier two guard group, and I want you to tier it out for me. Tell me where you see the following players. We got Tyrese Maxey, Kira Lewis, Tyrese Halliburton. We got Hayes, who I just mentioned, and then Hampton, who goes with them. Can you put them in some kind of bracket where you see who, who's the best in that group? Who's the worst? I know you have your mock draft, and I'm curious if that's changed at all or, or where you see these guys. And, and, and if you could spend a little more time on Tyrese Maxey and Kira Lewis uh, and, and Halliburton, I'm, I'm very curious because Halliburton stood out to me watching college basketball. Now, that's eye test, and that's me watching Iowa State play. So I'm not the resource of all resources on that. But there's a big difference between the eyes that you get on an Iowa State game and the eyes that you get when you play for Kentucky uh, in, in Maxey's case. So I like Maxie's game a lot, but I'm not sure how it translates. So I'm trying to see if you could tear out that kind of second level of guard uh, that we're probably going to see going, uh, call it teens to 20s. Sure. Well, I like Ball best, and I like Hayes second best. And then after those guys, I really like Maxie. Maxie's mm. weird because he's built like a point guard, right? He's like 6'2 mm-hmm. or something, and he's got long arms. I think he's a 6'6 wingspan guy, but he's not a natural floor general. Uh, like he's, he's definitely not going to be, you know, facilitating the offense on a high level on a consistent basis. Mm. But I think that uh, as the league has gone to more of these oversized offensive creators in the half court, like Luca, like LeBron, uh, it's sort of opened up new possibilities for the small guard who gets buckets and who can defend one position, but isn't like a brilliant facilitator. So, you know, playing next to a bigger offensive initiator, I think is absolutely the best case scenario fit wise for Tyrese Maxey. I think, you know, if you were to put him on the heat, let's say, and it Mm -hmm. it is possible he slips all the way to 20. To me, he has a really volatile range of outcomes on where he could go on the board. He could go to the Knicks at eight. He could go to the heat at 20. You don't know. Uh, I think that if he lands next to one of these big offensive initiators like Jimmy Butler, he could be awesome. Uh, Because he can really get to the rim. I think that that's one of his skills. Uh, And he is a strong finisher. So he's the guy who could like sort of uh, absorb contact and still finish at the rim. He's a guy who can contort his body around defenders, still finish at the rim. Uh, He certainly has some, some apparent holes in his game. I think like as a spot up shooter, that's going to have to be where he works. Uh, I like his like floater ability too. He had a lot of really nice floaters at Kentucky. So I would be willing to bet on Maxi. Now, I don't think that you should like give him the ball and tell him to run the show. I think he's a little bit more of like a maybe a spark plug guard, but I think he can start as long as he's in the right fit. But there's a thin line there, right? Of like, are you just like a microwave scorer off the bench or are you like a starter who can really contribute within a team context? (laughs) I am on the higher end of Maxi on that scale, provided that you don't put too much on his plate because. Uh, I just really love his finishing ability. And I think he's got like good floaters and runners. He really competes defensively. He almost plays like press coverage, like a cornerback defensively mm. where he's got these long arms and he's, he's really physical getting into the body of sure. defenders. So uh, uh, I like Maxi. And, and when do, when do we, and you tell me about, like, is this something that you think about or is it fair to kind of disassociate the Jersey that someone wears when they're, when they're playing 
but at what point do we just kind of add a little bit more, uh, whatever the might credence, whatever the term might be or value to playing at Kentucky and how that translates to the NBA right now, the way that Calipari's current crop of players of the last four or five years, you can go back to Anthony Davis if you want. And there's been some misses. Michael Kidd Gilchrist is not the player he was, but I think there was some red flags about his overall offensive ability. And then he had his messed up shoulder for multiple years too. But I'm watching Bam and I'm watching Hero and everyone has the same thing. They weren't used correctly in college. And that might not have been the point to Calipari bringing them in. He may have just known they were the best overall uh, players or the people who had the highest ceiling. I look at guys like Booker, again, underutilized in college and now are becoming superstars in the league. Is you know does Maxi fall into that boat where he was given the wrong keys to the the car in college, or is it the situation where he actually did you know was utilized correctly and that we are properly evaluating him? Uh, well, you're not mentioning Scal, you're not yeah. mentioning Kevin Knox, you're not mentioning yeah. <laughs> Diallo. Well, how so, much of that's the Knicks? Does the Knicks does the Knicks subtract from the jersey if it's yeah yeah or, how or much the King, or the Kings? Yeah, they, yeah, sure. How much that's of that is point. the Heat for turning Bam and yeah. Hero into good players? So that's fair. Yeah, that's I think fair. that. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. The guys who are considered the best recruits probably have a higher likelihood just in a vacuum of going sure. on to be the best NBA players. Like yep. your recruiting ranking is not the end of the world whatsoever. This draft class really shows that with Devin Vassell and with uh, uh, Halliburton being guys who are way off the radar. But yeah, I mean, just in general, like it makes sense that the the highest viewed recruits are going to be potentially the best NBA players. And a lot of times the highest recruits go to Kentucky. So uh, (laughs) I do think there's something to that, to be sure. But Mm. I don't think you can have a blanket statement and saying, oh, well, one in doubt, we're just going to take a Kentucky guy. To me, that's just like super lazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you know what? I was not that high on Bam in the draft. (laughs) And Bam looks amazing now. And I think that part of it is because like, and this is going to be said about all these guys. I think it's good context to remember. Uh, you know, like the player Bam was at Kentucky is not even close to the player he is today. Like he got way, way, way better. And, you know, there's certainly part of this process that's more like, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm blanking on the word here. Like, uh, you're trying to deduce their, their mental abilities sort of sure sure how good they'll be within a team context and how well they work with others and all these sort of things i'm sure prado would have a he's has read a lot of books and could talk yeah yeah way more than well this this is a no books podcast so uh you know this is all just about conjecture and uh, (laughs) gut feelings eye tests you know the the real uh, hard sciences yes that's what i'm here for so yeah i think that uh you know in general there's something to that with the kentucky guys but uh, you got to take it on a case-by-case basis uh But I'll get into Kyra really quick. Kyra Lewis. Yeah, please. Because, yeah, I like yeah. Kyra. So I mispronounced his name. Apologies there. I said Kira. Okay. It's Kyra. Yep. I yeah. mispronounced it for six months. So don't feel too bad. Uh, so the thing about Kyra is that he was the youngest freshman in the country last year when he came in. He was a 17-year-old freshman. He was pretty solid. He totally held his own as a 17-year-old freshman at Alabama. Then Alabama hires Buffalo's head coach, a guy by the name of Nate Oates. If listeners of this podcast aren't familiar with Nate Oates, uh, he's probably the best college coach, to be honest, or like one of the best tacticians. Uh, You might remember Buffalo beating Arizona in the first round of the NCAA tournament when they had DeAndre Ayton. He beat them by running pick and roll at DeAndre Ayton every time down the floor. He went right at their best player, and they were able to pull this huge upset. Now he's at Bama. 
So the thing with Oates is like he very much is like an NBA sort of shot profile that he wants from his team. So Kyra Lewis was the engine of the offense. He was not taking mid-range shots. He was pretty much just going to the basket, trying to get to the rim or shooting threes. And Kyra is super fast with the ball. I think he's probably the fastest guy in this class with the ball in his hands. Uh, He's not an elite finisher or passer, but he's like competent at both areas, I would say. Mm -hmm. And he's not a great shooter, but he's a pretty good shooter. And in general, he sort of has this ability to get into the teeth of the defense and just create havoc when that happens. uh, That's really valuable. I think a good comp for Kyra Lewis would be like Dennis Schroeder. Hmm. Uh, you know, a guard who it's like, yeah, he can run point guard and he could be pretty good, but also like, maybe he can't be great at being the guy, but you can also like put him with some other guards and maybe you can like find something there. So I think, you know, you're betting on the speed, the ability to break down the defense in the open floor. He's fast as hell. So, uh, and he can kind of shoot, you know, there's a lot of worse shooters in this draft than Kyra Lewis. He could definitely be a guy who hits 36, 37% of his threes, uh, not on super difficult attempts, not on a ton of volume, but on mo- mm-hmm. moderate volume, I would say. Uh, how did, how did he play against Maxi this year when Bama played Kentucky or last year? I, I would need say. to go back and look up yeah. the game log. Cause I can't yeah. really recall off the top of my head, Curious. but sure. uh, yeah, th- I mean, those two guys are both sort of viewed in the same tier. I think I yep. really should. Go- yep. I, I should be prepared on this question. I'm sorry, I'm not. No, it's but, okay. You know, it's uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, I think that, uh, you know, those two guys both would be options for the Knicks at number sure. eight. And I think mm. they would both be options for the Suns at number 10. And then the Pelicans at number 13. So that's kind of the range yeah. you're looking at for that level of guard. Sure, sure. Especially if the Pelicans decide to move on uh, on Drew uh, Holiday. That, that'd be fascinating to see if they replace... Uh, uh, their their point guard there, um, or I guess Lonzo's on their team, but their other guard. Um, and then tell me about Halliburton. So that this is an interesting one, right? I, I feel like I feel like every single year Iowa State has some interesting guard forward hybrid player. Um, I'm not sure if that's where Halliburton fits, but in the past couple of years, they've had that player, whether that was someone running point from the power forward position uh, or someone playing from the small forward position, like in Horton's case uh, last year or two years ago. Now I'm getting the years all confused because we haven't really had uh, the same type of uh, consecutive season here. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit about him and then, uh, then we'll take a quick break and we'll get into the bigs and uh, some kind of ceiling floor type players. So tell me a little about uh, Ty- Tyrus Halliburton from Iowa State. Tyrus Halliburton. So he was way off the radar coming in as a freshman. He was like in the 200s as a recruit. No one expected anything from him. He, as a freshman, was Iowa State's like seventh man maybe. And he Mm. was like insanely efficient in somewhat limited duty, somewhat limited usage. Uh, Put up like the highest offensive rating and had just like incredible uh, offensive indicators, super efficient scorer, high assist rate, high steal rate. And so the question coming into his sophomore year was like, can he actually maintain this efficiency while carrying a bigger burden of usage. Mm. And by and large, the answer was yes. He was still a very efficient player for Iowa State. I think he had like almost a 4% steal rate on defense. He's an awesome spot-up shooter. Like that's the one thing I think you could definitely Mm. count on is that like if he gets uh, a wide open three, he's able to hit it. Uh, He's another guy who had, you know, really high assist rate. His, His numbers were wonderful. He is sort of an interesting test case to me where like, I don't think the eye test really meets the numbers and I typically side with the numbers, but I just have a little something holding me back on Halliburton Hmm. where like the thing with him is like, 
if you you want a comparison for him, he's more like Lonzo Ball than Lamelo is in that he <laughs> really struggles to get into the teeth of the defense and to put pressure on the rim. So like he's not going to get to the foul line. He's not someone who's going to like you know draw the defense in and score at the rim. Uh, hmm. He's mostly kind of like a sort of a stationary player to me. Like he is a good passer, but he's a guy who could like make the extra pass more than like break down the defense, get everyone to collapse, sure. and then make the pass. Uh, same thing with him as a shooter. I think I feel good about him as a spot up shooter. I don't really feel good about him as an off the dribble shooter. So fit <laughs> is going to be really important for him. Uh, you know, his defensive numbers were amazing, but he's also like 170 pounds. Right, so I'm right. like, how is this guy going to be a plus defensive player? Teams are just going to go right through the middle of his chest. Like yeah, he'll be targeted because yeah. he's so skinny. So, you know, it's sort of a dumb critique in a lot of ways because I definitely had a lot of people in 2011 or whatever who were telling me that Anthony Davis was too skinny to succeed. <laughs> you know, guys get older, they get stronger. It works sure. out. But uh, Halliburton, to me, like, I don't like the fact that he's a guard who can't get in the paint. And if you're taking a guy in the top 10, I would like to see that skill. Sure. Uh, I do think there's some good fits for him. I don't love the idea of him going number six overall to Atlanta, but I think he could be really good next to Trey Young for sure. And in sure. a draft that kind of stinks, you know, why not just go for the fit guy? Maybe he doesn't have a super high upside, but he fits well. But I just wonder, like, those guys defensively, to me, would just get eaten alive. But I, I could be wrong. I mean, certainly the steal rate is a stat that tends to translate from college to the NBA. It's like an indicator mm. that you're going to be a good pro. Halliburton's got the steal rate. So, I mean, mm. what the hell do I know? That's Maybe interesting. That out. And then, uh, you know, the Suns at 10, I think, could be a good a good uh, fit for him. I think that the Suns probably want to find another point guard uh, to be like a long-term option as Rubio starts to get a little older. So I think he could be a decent fit there, but, uh, in general, like I'm not as high on Halliburton as a lot of people are. I would probably view him as like a late lottery pick or even a little beyond that. I do think it's possible that he goes at six, maybe even four, who knows? So, uh, yeah, he's a good prospect, but he's got some clear strengths and weaknesses. I think is the book on him. Got it. Interesting. I I guess, Two last questions before we get to, to the quick break here. But aside from steel rate, any other stats that translate as directly that, that you follow? How about free throw percentage? I think like hmm. if a guy's a bad three-point shooter, but they're a good free throw shooter, case in point, Tyrese Maxey. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think Maxey was like an 82% free throw shooter, but like a 28% three-point shooter. Hmm. Uh, feel free to fact check me on this and to reply, but it was something we don't need like facts. That. Facts and, are stupid. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm in Killian Hayes too. Killian Hayes was an 80 plus percent three point free throw shooter hmm. when he was a sub 30 percent three point shooter. So I think like uh, if you're trying to project how good a guy can be as a shooter, look at free throw percentage. Uh, if you want, you know, a guy who doesn't fit this, how about Denny Evdija? who people think, you know, uh, shooting's a swing skill. We don't know. Maybe he can shoot. We're not sure. But he shot under 60%. He was like 58% at the foul line. So to me, I'm like, uh, I don't know. Like, if he can't make a free throw, how is he supposed to make a three? Now, of course, I'm sure there's plenty of examples in the past of a guy who developed into a good three-point shooter when he couldn't make a free throw when he was 19 years old. But sure. uh, that's a that's a stat that I'm looking at for shooting projection. If you can make a free throw, yeah. uh, you probably have just good natural touch on the ball and, sure. you know, good release, all these things. Uh, so that's another one I'd look at. 
All right, cool. Well, we will, I want to touch more on Denny Avdija of uh, Maccabee Tel Aviv and, and some of the other players who have played overseas, some of the Euros, and ultimately talk a little bit more about the forwards and centers, the bigs in this draft. We've just spent the first half of this pod talking about the guards, plenty of other prospects. Want to get your sleepers. The Sixers have two early second round picks. I want to know who we should be taking. We as in the Sixers. <laughs> Hi there. I said it. I always do that, Ricky. I said we when I meant the, the Sixers. Uh, at, but if you listen to this podcast, you know how I feel about them. Um, and so we will, uh, we'll get some more out of Ricky. We're just going to keep uh, squeezing the juice out of, uh, out of the orange here. And ultimately uh, this has been, it's been great so far. A couple words from our sponsors. Now after the break, we'll get back with power forwards, centers, sleepers, second round picks, limited upside podcast. Good news. If you're disappointed like me, that the NBA season is over, or at least it's good news for people who, unlike me, love this sport, which appears to be the majority of this country. The wait's finally over. Football is back, for now at least, but probably for a while. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division and championship futures all day, every day. There will be a winner for the NFC East. I promise. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE. B L U E W I R E. All one word. Bet online. Your online sportsbook experts. The Limited Upside Podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because Indeed gets you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in a hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. And right now, Indeed is offering limited upside listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post. That means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer valid through September 30th. 
All right, welcome back to Limited Upside Podcast. The first half we spent on guards, talked a lot about uh, LaMelo, uh, talked a lot about Maxi, uh, Kyra Lewis. Go back and listen to that if you haven't, if you're just coming into the second part of this. First half's on guards. Second half here, we're going to talk a little bit more about the bigs. Uh, interesting draft here. There's a couple euros. There is Denny Avdija, who you mentioned on the uh, before the the break here. There's uh you know I, I would call I'm not going to say Dayton is an overseas uh, uh, a guy from Maccabee Tel Aviv, but um, Obi Toppin's a player who if you don't watch a, a lot of college basketball or you missed last season, you might have missed. He as Ricky mentioned earlier on here, could have potentially led the Dayton Flyers to an NCAA championship. James Weissman played, I think, like uh, two or three games this past season. And uh, and and then the effects of um, being in Anthony Hardaway and Memphis's uh, call whirlwind of illegality caught up to him. Uh, and there's plenty to be talked about there, but we won't waste too much time yet. And then Anthony Edwards, I think, falls into that kind of, look, he's not, we haven't mentioned him yet. He's a two-guard, three-wing athlete, whatever. I want to get some more thoughts on him. But Ricky, before we talk about any of those guys, I, I do want to st- uh, start with with Weissman. Um, I feel like there is a lot of chatter, even today, as we do this on November 10th, uh, that certain uh teams are looking to move up potentially to draft him, that there's a lot of uncertainty maybe in where he will land. Um, t- talk to me about Weissman. I, I look at a massive left-handed athlete who in very limited appearance in college basketball looked great. I did see him play in high school um, at uh, one of the, I think it was a Jordan brand all American game. So call that high school, but, uh, and he was um, impressive physically speaking. He stands out. He's a bit of a unicorn from an athletic standpoint, I'm curious to, to hear your thoughts on one, was it good or bad that he didn't have to really show his hand in college very much? I, I'm always curious. I think sometimes overexposure can be a problem or underexposure can go in a different direction. Uh, and then two, where's the best fit for him right now with these call it Hornets, uh, Golden State? Uh, I mean, any one of these, even Minnesota potentially where's a guy like Weissman make sense and talk to me about sort of what we can expect from someone who really, we haven't seen very much. Yeah. Well, if he goes in the top three, I think that like everything worked out for him because it's pretty <laughs> much the best case scenario you could hope for. So in that regard, I don't think that uh, if he does indeed go in the top three, I think that, you know, it, it worked out just fine for him. Not yeah. playing much. Sure, uh, sure. I had seen Weisman play a ton. I saw him play at USA Basketball's junior mini camp, I think two different times. Hmm. I saw him play, I think, two different times as well on the EYBL tour, which is Nuggies AAU yep. circuit. And uh, I've had the same take on James Wiseman ever since. I think that it, he is truly overrated as an elite prospect. I think wow. that uh, it is going to be very difficult for him to return value as a top three guy. And I just go back to the same concerns I had in high school for him. In high school, you know, the EYBL, they put out their all EYBL team. They got three teams. It's basically like the all NBA team. He was the number one recruit in the country. He couldn't even make one of the top three all EYBL teams. Wow. And I saw him on that circuit, you know, twice, two different times. Again, not the biggest sample size, but it was over two different years. Almost his entire college career. (laughs) He was getting worked by the other five-star centers in that class who are not considered top 10 draft picks. Those guys Hmm. would be Isaiah Stewart out of Washington, who was a very high recruit who the NBA scouts don't love. And Vernon Carey, who was actually a super productive freshman at Duke. He was an all American, but you know, he's another guy who might not go in the first round and they were whooping Wiseman's ass to be honest. So I think Hmm. Wiseman had a 52% true shooting percentage on the EYBL in high school. 
So that's just a huge red flag to me. And then the other thing that worries me about Wiseman is just a general lack of versatility. Like in terms of what he can do well, now, to be clear, I do think that, like, he's a lottery talent. I have him in the yeah. top four. I probably have him as, like, the 10th best player because I think he has a high floor. I don't see mm-hmm. the ceiling that I would want to spend a top three pick on him. Mm-hmm. So why I think he's sort of limited, uh, to me, he's someone who he's 7-1. He's super long. He's, like, cut like a Greek god, basically. He's got wide shoulders, chiseled frame. Uh, and one thing that you won't hear from the Wiseman haters, but I'll say it, He's like super duper fast end to end in the open floor. I mean, the guy flies in the open floor. It's like kind of crazy, but I don't know if that's the most important thing for a center. Hmm. Like to me, he has slow load time. Like you remember when Hmm. Marvin Bagley was in the draft and we marveled Uh, at how quickly Marvin Bagley can get off the floor. James Wiseman's like the opposite end of that, where I really think he needs to like load up to jump. He's not going to like bounce twice off the floor, three times off the floor super quickly. So I think that limits him. And then uh, in terms of his overall skill set, I think you can only play drop coverage with him. And to me, in the playoffs every year, we see teams that are like, all right, we're going to play some switch. Well, we're going to play some drop. We're going to play some zone. We're going to, and now maybe Wiseman could be really good in zone. I'm just saying that I don't think he's going to be able to switch. Uh, And so, I mean, drop is probably the most effective form of pick and roll coverage, but you need to be able to do a lot of them. And to me, a guy like Onyeka Okongwu, who's the center from USC, I think Okongwu is the best center prospect in this draft. Uh, I'm not torn on that. I I feel pretty confident that he is. Again, I might be totally wrong. I've been wrong many times in the past. But to me, Akongu is the best center. I would take him over Wiseman because I feel like he's much more versatile in terms of the types of defense he can play against the pick and roll, against isolations. He's he's much more polished. And then Wiseman's offense, it's like, what can he do besides for dunk the ball? And honestly, dunking the ball is really important. We call it the dunker's spot for a reason. Like, sometimes you just got to dunk the ball. Right, uh, efficient shot, but I don't think he's going to add plus value as a shooter or a passer. I definitely think that, like you know, if this was 15 years ago, we'd be having a Dwight Howard conversation where it's like <laughs> the guy wants to post up, but we don't want to give him post ups. Sure. So in today's day and age, I don't think he's even going to be under the guise that he's going to get post ups. Right. Uh, but I don't want to give him those either. So now maybe he could be. You know, I still have him as a, a lottery pick in this draft and is, you know, probably like 10, 11, somewhere around there guy in this draft, because I think uh, he's super long. He's strong. He's like I said, fast in the open floor. I think he'll be a good rim protector and I think he'll be a pretty good dunker. But I think he's more like, you know, white side than he is mm. prime Dwight Howard. Yeah. So I think he could be a productive guy, but is a top two, top three pick. I'm just like, no, thank you. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting. So I'm hearing more, yeah, more white side, more maybe Capella comp than I'm hearing, you know, uh, call it a BAM or some kind of, you know, a modern day big right now who needs to be able to look the drop, the drop pick and roll defense. Look, again, not to put over emphasis on the bubble, but obviously that was exploited to Wazoo, making guys like Rudy Gobert and Joel Embiid into, you know, essentially glorified Nick Vucevic is out there. And that's not what you want from all NBA defensive centers. Does he have, in Wiseman's case, does he have the feet? Does he have the lateral ability? Like, talk to me a little bit about, like, that. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the part we don't know, right? Best question. I would say no. I would bet against Mm it. That's interesting. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. Well, so, okay. So you, and you mentioned, um, Okongwu who I'm, I'm not going to screw up his name. I'm going to say Okongwu. And I think that's, that's close to accurate here. What, what other bigs and talk to me about him talking about the other center crop here that you have, you know, in that Wiseman, uh, range, if not 
people who you think will be more productive NBA players. Uh, because I ultimately think right now the the most volatile value position in the NBA is center because we do not yet know what the definition and shape of that position is going to be five years from now, let alone this next year. And I think we just saw an NBA playoffs fold, uh, unfold where the two teams competing in the championship essentially didn't use the position. They used athletic, talented, skilled guys over a certain height, but not in any traditional sense of a center. I mean, it, look, sure, Dwight Dwight banged a little bit, but it's different when you're doing that with Anthony Davis next to you and, and, and LeBron on your team. And obviously, um, you know, the Heat took their own approach to the position, having to use Miles Leonard a little bit, a more traditional big who also just shoots threes. Uh, but the point here is, and same thing with Olenek, um, but the BAM obviously is your kind of the way the position is, is mutating in a positive way. So talk to me about the bigs who you kind of think fit the traditional sense. And then the ones who you could see being molded into the way that the position is, is moving. Yeah. It's like, you know, you can say that the heat in the Lakers didn't have their centers be a big part of the team, but like also maybe their centers were the biggest part of the team. Yeah. Count Anthony Davis and bam is the centers. Sure. So yeah. Sure. I think that like, it's just changing and evolving. And uh, I mean, what I want is just versatility. I guess. Totally. So like, I think a is the best center. I'd have Wiseman as the second best center. I know I just ripped Wiseman, but I don't think it's a strong center class in general. So that's the mm-hmm. first thing. A to me, is one of the best players in the draft class. But I think that like in terms of his overall value in the league, it's fair to say, like, if you're not going to be a volume scorer, how valuable are you going to be? Like, yeah. I do think that a will be a winning type player where his impact transcends his numbers in a lot of cases, because I think like he can play just so many different types of coverage and he's the only guy in this draft class that can really provide that. In uh, offensively, he's a really efficient finisher. He scored, if you look at the synergy numbers on a variety of different play types, Akangwu <laughs> was a really efficient guy. And he's also like good vertical athlete. I mean, or maybe even a great vertical athlete. Like he can go sure. and dunk the ball just as well as Wiseman can, even though he's smaller. Uh, and I guess the thing on Akangwu, if you're not familiar with him, he's sort of bam size. He's sort of yep. like yep. six eight or six nine, six nine, two forty-five, let's say, seven <laughs> one wingspan. So like now that did not look like a center when me and you were growing up. Yep. You know, but the game's different. Obviously, we all know this. We've talked about this for nine years at this point. So at yeah, this point, yeah. it's it's taken hold. It's yep. not changing. It's changed, right? Yep, that's and I right. I think that Akangwu fits into the league paradigm much better than any of these other guys, Wiseman included. Mm. And right. I would take him. Like I know that, like it's tough to take a center who's not going to be a volume scorer sort of if you got the third pick, because in a lot of ways, like what a Congo is giving you, you can probably find 85% of that for cheap on the free agent market. You know, that's one team building theory. Sure. Uh, but also like if I'm looking for guys to take in this class, I don't feel more confident about many players than I do about a Congo just as being a good player. Like, yeah, so high, high I'll take Kongu, he's going to be yeah. good. So yep. give me him. Yeah. I think that if the Hornets could get a Kongwu, dude, give me give me PJ Washington and a Kongwu is sort of like a throwback bully front line that like yeah. doesn't have a seven footer, but like they're both efficient, smart, skilled, tough as shit. They'll beat you up. So I sort of love. I would love that fit. Uh, I don't think they're going to take him. But no, they're going to make a bad good. trade and, and take Wiseman to uh, to just to your chagrin. Um, yeah. <laughs> the likely uh, likelihood uh, there. And then, you know, look at Washington at nine. There's been a lot mm-hmm. of buzz about Washington and Congo, but 
Yeah, like, hmm. you know, Thomas Bryant's really talented, I think. Uh, not that I, like, watch a ton of the Wizards, but I, I've seen Thomas Bryant since he was a high school player. Sure, and sure. His numbers were pretty good this past Good in year. the NBA, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he's just, like, not going to be the linchpin of your defense ever yep. if you're a good yep. team. And yep. I think that center's definitely the one position, this is just my opinion, where defense is more important than offense. So give me a Kongwu. If he goes to Washington, I think the team's just going to be a lot better and they'll have a winning guy in the yep. middle who can kind of be the linchpin of that defense. Uh, you know, Boston, they got three picks. They're in a roster crunch already. They got 26, they got 30, and they got 14. Package yeah. them all, trade up and get a Kongwu. I mean, why not? Like, I don't think yep. he's going to be a superstar. And there's like the obvious BAM comp with him. And I feel like it's so tempting because everyone likes a Kongwu. And we're just coming off this season where BAM just had this great year and yeah. they're both like the same size and their college numbers aren't that different. But like, Bam's development has just been like super <laughs> sick. And I don't think that you can really put that on anyone else. Fairly, totally. Right. Yeah. So I'm not going to say a is the next Bam, but I think he could be maybe a Bam light sort of player. Uh, and to me, that's a valuable player. So I like a Kongo. That's my boy. Totally. In terms of like the other centers, the one guy I'll shout yeah. out who I do like in this class, who I think can be a plug and play guy is my boy, Xavier Tillman from Michigan state. You might, mm-hmm. uh, if you watch big time basketball yep. at all over the last couple of years, Xavier Tillman was just like the ultimate winning player. And it shows up in all the advanced stats and the box score plus minus all these all in one stats. Xavier Tillman was like the best player in the country last year. Hmm. And he's like six, eight, two forty five. He can't really jump. He can't really shoot. He's not going to battle you above the rim, but he will beat you up on the ground. He's definitely like a floor-bound, strong, smart, efficient, skilled, great rebounder, unless he has to jump for it. (laughs) Shot blocker, unless he has to jump for it. But I really like Tillman as a late first-rounder. Like If Boston gets Xavier Uh, Tillman at 26 or 30, that's great. If Toronto gets him at 28, I think he's just going to be like – he could handle playoff minutes right away, I think. Yeah, uh, because he had the the consistent production at a high level in college. Sure, sounds like he could fall to the Lakers potentially, or any of these good teams where he can fulfill a role right away. Um, no, that that's very interesting. And I think you also made a good point about the immediacy uh, uh, value. I'll say that we put upon players to fulfill what we just saw from what was successful. So that bias that goes into finding the next Bam because, well, Bam was just incredibly successful in this season and he might just be a very unique player insofar as his aptitude for uh, for learning is apparently very, very high. Um, so I wonder how much we we project onto, uh, you know, the next draft class, especially in this case too, where the season just ended and the draft is happening right away. And then there's a few days and then there's free agency. So there is actually in a weird way significantly more value on hitting some draft picks this year than any other year previously, because free agency is going to be a very short crapshoot and you're not going to have a whole lot of time to get these players ready for the NBA because the season starts a month after the draft uh, and not, you know, late June draft in November start or late October start as usual. And so there's, there's all these weird little variables that might, that might actually make drafting in the late twenties easier than drafting in the top 10 in a lot of ways. Cause you're going to be picking for a specific fit potentially for a team who only needs a very specific role. Um, and so it, I'm very curious to see how this plays out. I would not, I do not envy the front offices of, uh, of all of these teams. Um, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit. Uh, and I want to get to, to the, the second round sleepers and guys who you think are going to make uh, an impact in, in what I, you know, in the most valuable draft slots, those early second round picks. 
but we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about Anthony Edwards. I, I, I think we've made it here 45 minutes into this podcast without talking about a guy who is almost definitely going to be going in the top two or three, uh, arguably had some of the most impactful performances of last college basketball season, looks the part in a way that maybe no one else in this draft does um, from an athletic standpoint, a bodybuild standpoint. And look, he didn't go to Kentucky or Kansas or Duke uh, or UNC. He went to Georgia, a little bit different there. Um, and so what I, I guess I'm trying to get at is, is this the type of player who in a in a more traditional year, the hype and buzz and the draft workouts and the combines and all the things that would have gone into the totality of a high draft pick would have bumped him up into a, this is the number one pick? Or, or are we in a case where, look, there were a lot of flaws that we just didn't have as much exposure to because, um, look, he played a handful of games last year. His best games were arguably in a preseason tournament uh, out in what I believe Hawaii. Was that where? Yeah. Hawaii. Maui right. So now yeah. invitational. Right. And so, you know, if you're staying up to watch, you may have seen those games. Tell me about Anthony Edwards, wh- where he fits in the grand scheme of what we're considering a bad draft, but is he still an elite prospect who would have flourished in another draft as well? A better draft. The most frustrating player in the draft to me <laughs> because holy cow, is this guy a monster athlete? I interviewed him for a story at SB nation when mm-hmm. Uh, there was rumors he was going to reclassify. He hadn't mm. even done it yet. And it was, you know, a similar situation to RJ Hampton where he just skipped ahead. And I was like, this guy might be it because you see him and he's like built like a linebacker. He has incredible quick twitch athleticism. And when Anthony Edwards wants to get to the rim, he's like basically unstoppable. He's got the strength to absorb any contact going to the rim. He can contort his body. He's just so good at getting to the rim when he wants to. Uh, and when I, when I talked to him and I was talking to his trainer and some people who knew him from a young age, they were like, dude, go on YouTube and Google Anthony Edwards, Ant-Man football highlights from when he was <laughs> 10 years old. And I'm like, okay. They're like, you know, we're crazy about football here in the South. And when this kid was like 10, 11 years old, we all thought he was going to be the next Barry Sanders. And his highlights are like totally insane. And then you look at his body and I'm like, I don't know, maybe like he's training for basketball and he's like 225, 230. He could have been like a sick defensive end or linebacker or anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he has like the body, the athleticism and the flashes are just like, Oh my God. So good. You mentioned the Maui invitational performance against Michigan state single best game. Any draft prospect played this year, probably totally dominated scored 33 in the second half made so many amazing defensive plays. He was just hitting like, basically Damian Lillard pull up threes and it was like, Oh my God. And he does have that shot making ability. Mm. Like he can hit bad shots. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It kind of <laughs> suckers him into taking bad shots, but why he's so frustrating now? Yep. Horrible defense. The defense is like, Oh my God, dude, you you have it all, but you don't have anything because you can't really process what's going on. And, you know, I feel mm. like for so long, I made, you know, the one thing I've learned covering the NBA draft, Ben, over the years is humility because I've just like made a lot of mistakes over the years, right? Like I thought sure, sure. Stanley Johnson was going to be good. And I thought Josh so did I. was going to be good. So I, I was wrong about Stanley Johnson too. I remember seeing him live in person and being like, that's that middle linebacker. That's the guy who is the best athlete on the court and looks like an NBA player at 17 years old. Sorry, go ahead. I probably convinced you on that. So blame me. But, yeah, subliminally, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with that. Uh, but yeah, it's like, I think that Edwards just like, can you really rewire how a guy plays the game? 
you know, he has the physical tools that have tricked me before, but I don't, you just don't really see him use them on a consistent basis. And like people talk about LaMelo's defense. I think LaMelo is going to be way better defensively than Anthony Edwards. So (laughs) there's a take for you. I don't know how many people agree with that one, but I'm just going (laughs) to throw that one out there. I trust LaMelo's defense more than Anthony Edwards. So I'm just going to say that. And then uh, what's so frustrating about his offense is a shot selection. Here's another area where people rip LaMelo for it. Uh, but Edwards is just such a monster getting to the rim when he wants to. It's like, dude, just do that every time. But instead he's settling for these like fadeaways, uh, contested jump shots, two point jump shots, long twos a lot of the time. And it's just so frustrating to watch because when he does play the right way, I hate saying that I sound like my dad or like Larry Brown or something, but uh, you sound like uh, a former coach of the bulls. I can't put my fingers in. Yeah. When he plays the way you want him to play, he's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, like, to me, the best possible location for him, I think, would be Golden State because he would not have the burden of carrying the team early in his tenure. Golden State's bench is terrible, so he yep. could probably contribute on the bench right away, and they're going to try to win. So, like, I don't know. What could be better than playing with Steph and Clay in terms of, like, trying to teach him how to play off the ball instead and of on the ball? For defensive intelligence, Draymond Green. I mean, my lord. Absolutely. You got some guys who would be like a great coach. You have like a lot of structure there where I think he could learn. So I really like that fit for him. Now I think like if the Knicks drafted him and they were like, Hey, you're going to be our point guard and run the show. Like that would just be a disaster to me. Emmanuel Moutier 2.0 or I guess he was on the nuggets first, but yeah, uh, that's interesting. So that fit, that is such an outlier aspect of this draft, right? A team who's going to compete for the title next year is picking number two overall. Now, granted, this is not a Spurs late 90s situation where there's Tim Duncan sitting there and their best player just hurt his back the year before. Uh, they have a lot of more variables, right? The the relationship to Steph being older now. I mean, I forget because he is quite literally like, I think my exact age or one year younger than me. Steph is getting older and Clay came off his ACL and, and there are some question marks and Draymond's been uh, uh, offensively decreasing significantly and defensively too over the last three years. And so I guess what I'm looking at with it, with this opportunity is that fit. And this is what I highlighted in my, in my little notebook here on the draft. Uh, it's real. I can show it to you. I do have a little notebook is, is that there's a unique situation where players who need the ability to learn almost never get that opportunity. They fall into situations where they're given too much uh, emphasis in an offense or too much responsibility. And then ultimately they fail up a little bit or they fail down and, and you don't really get to see them learn. And I'm not going to be that old head here the right way, but golden state presents a very unique opportunity for whoever they draft. If they do sit at number two and, and don't move too far back because they're going to pick a top quality talent, whether the draft is up or down this year, notwithstanding. And then that person is not going to have expectations set upon them to help lead them for you know, 15, 20 points a game or play 38 minutes or whatever. That's just not the deal. It's Golden State. They're going to be a top six, seven team, five, six, seven team in the West next year, arguably better. So I'm very curious to see if Edwards lands there. I love that fit too, by the way. And I also think that it's a type of situation where, look, none of those guys we just mentioned are A-plus athletes. You know, Draymond is getting older. He's a unique athlete. Steph, uh, Clay, 
both incredibly skilled, uh, you know, basketball players. And in Clay's case, a great perimeter defensive player, but none of them are that elite apex athlete like Anthony Edwards. So he does present something that would be unique to that team. And it is a shallow bench to your point. Uh, and one that's been in flux in some of the retirements and Iguodala moving on, you know, Livingston retiring, et cetera. So uh, very curious to see how that, that plays out. Um, and ultimately also, I guess they still have Andrew Wiggins on their team. So don't know where he ends up, but I don't think there's a Wiggins Edwards world. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, don't know they're how kind they, of similar players. Yeah, don't know how they play together. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of similar players. But do you do you rate him? High? Okay, so that's an interesting comp, right? Wiggins had a lot of hype behind him. It goes without saying. The hindsight on him is twenty twenty right now. Would you rate Anthony Edwards and what you know now ahead of what you currently know about Wiggins? Not what you thought about Wiggins, maybe in the past. But do you like the upside on Edwards more than what you know Wiggins has become? I mean, Wiggins is so bad. Yeah. No, like, well, it's not that Wiggins is like terrible. It's that Wiggins will just, he makes way too much money for the yeah, type of player yeah. that he is. And you kind of got to factor that in, I would say. Yeah, so, like, do. I don't know if you had them both just where contracts didn't matter. Like, uh, I guess, like, you know, Edward, I don't think Wiggins has untapped upside anymore. I don't know what you think about this. Like, no, no. Maybe I'm... there's an argument to it playing in Golden State. And all the things I just said about Anthony Edwards in Golden State could be true about Wiggins when Steph comes back. You never know. But I don't really see Wiggins as having untapped upside, whereas with Edwards, like, I would still give him the benefit of the doubt because he's, like, 19 or whatever. Whereas Wiggins, yeah. we've just, like, seen it for six years in a row. Like, yeah. the Wolves owner literally made him shake his hand and promised to try harder when he offered him a contract. Probably not a good sign. And at the yeah. same point, when I saw Anthony Edwards get interviewed at the NBA draft lottery, they asked him, Anthony, what's your main takeaway from your freshman season at Georgia? And he said, I had a lot of bad games, so don't get too down on myself when I have bad games. That's not what I want to hear when I'm taking a guy number one overall. Well, I had a lot of bad games. That's my biggest <laughs> takeaway. So at least uh, you didn't say, you know, I wish I was coached better and uh, that my teammates were better because I did everything I could. And I just, I got to blame the other guys, you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. And I, I'm, I'm not, I don't think the Wiggins book is completely written. Having said that, I, yeah, I'm not buying stock on, on on Wiggins Island at this point. I, you know, I prefer guys even like Ben McLemore who have a specific skill they do well, you know, drafted high up, who may have been bust in the beginning, to someone like Wiggins who seems to be pretty ambiguous to what his exact plus skill set is. Um, anyhow, we only have a few more minutes left here again, so I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you uh, about those kind of, and I call them the value picks. That seems to be the the way that. Uh, they, you know, they're described because they're not first round draft picks. It's not a guarantee contract per se, but that those early second round picks can be very, very valuable. Sixers, my, my favorite team here have two of those picks, I believe like 34 and 36 or something like that. Um, and so I'm wondering who do you see falling maybe into that first five, six, seven picks of the second round who, who really is going to be able to contribute this next season. Tell to me about, about a few of those sleepers. I love this question because whenever anyone asks me who the sleepers are this year, I always say Desmond Bain, hmm. but uh, you are stating this clearly as second round guys. And I think Bain will go in the twenties. So okay. I'm not going to mention Desmond Bain, but I covered my bases just in case someone tries to watch this <laughs> four years from now. So uh, in terms of guys who go in the second round, I'll throw a few names at you. Yeah. I already talked about Xavier Tillman. I think Xavier mm-hmm. Tillman's super dope. I think he's NBA ready. I think he's just a tough dude who is going to be kind of a plug and play guy. So mm-hmm. I like Tillman. Uh, a couple other guys. I really like Isaiah Joe, sophomore guard out of Arkansas. 
just a sick shooter. I mean, if you're talking about hmm. a guy like Aaron Neesmith, I think, or Nesmith, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. You've, it's not, not Neesmith. Go yeah. in the lottery. Like, ah, I kind of think Isaiah Joe is just as good as him, and he can go in the second round. So I think Joe is like a movement shooter, and that's going to be his game, but he's a really good movement shooter. Those guys are super valuable, so I like him. Uh, we talked about Kyra Lewis earlier as, you know, a guy who would potentially go number eight overall. If you're going to take him, I kind of like the idea of Devin Dotson, who was the best player in the country, on the best team in the country, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Obi Toppin was the best player in the country, but uh, – Devin Dotson was like right in that tier of like top five overall player in the country point guard on Kansas, similar skill set to Kyra Lewis, in my opinion, where he can has a fast first step can get into the teeth of the defense. And then he has some more shortcomings in his game, but he's strong. He's fast, super quick, uh, competitive. So I like Dotson. If you have a pick in the second round, Uh, Killian Tilly is another guy I'll name. You might remember Killian Tilly. If you watch that, national championship game a few years ago between North Carolina and Gonzaga. Uh, Gonzaga's big freshman star that year was Zach Collins, who now is, of course, on the mm-hmm. Portland Trailblazers, but Tilly was their other freshman star. And then he was really good from an early age. He's a French guy, 6'10", forward, who can really shoot. He yeah. just had in- injury after injury after injury. And last year he barely played. And uh, if he was fully healthy, I feel like he could have been a lottery pick in this draft, maybe. But he got hurt like two years yep. ago, so it's sort of hard to say. A little but older, I too, right? He, he's he's like 22, 23. Yeah, okay, yeah, got it. Checks okay. Out. He's 22. Yep. 22, uh, okay. About to turn 23. I'll give you there two you other names uh, who I like. I like Paul Reed. I got a ride for my DePaul Blue Demons. I didn't go to DePaul, <laughs> but they're the only college basketball team in the city. I'm not counting Northwestern, so I'll ride for DePaul. And uh, Paul Reed's pretty dope. Six foot nine, six ten forward, super high steal rate, super high block rate, really good offensive rebound numbers. So he had a lot of like positive indicators. He has perhaps the world's ugliest jump shot, but sometimes it goes in. And is a free throw shooter. He was like seventy four percent. So it's like, ah, this is pretty go. good. Maybe he's got some shooting potential. Uh, I sort of view him as kind of like an energy combo big off the bench. <laughs> he's skinny. He's got some holes. But as a second rounder, he's got enough positive indicators in terms of his body and his statistical profile that I would maybe take a chance on him. And I also like Skylar Mays, who's another senior in the same vein as Desmond Bain. Uh not that they have super similar games, but just in terms of like being six, four senior guards who played a power mm-hmm. programs who were under the radar and, you know, maybe they're kind of moving up a little bit. Bain certainly is. I think, uh, Skylar Mays, he was like pretty good on the ball in terms of pick and roll. He hit like 40% of his threes on a decent volume. Uh, I don't really know how he's going to translate defensively, but I think offensively, like he probably play a little bit on the ball as sort of a secondary creator. And mm-hmm. I think he's, he's pretty good as a cutter and he has just like some bankable skills. Uh, so yeah, those are my, those are my cool. deep sleeper second round guys. Lovely. Lovely. I know I didn't get to, to fully get into the, the Euro question here. So maybe we'll end with this. There's, there's some players here who've played for the best teams uh, overseas, right? That's Maccabee Tel Aviv, the Barcelona, you know, the, the big leagues, call it Israel, Spain, Turkey, et cetera. Talk, talk to me a little bit, the last, last part of this podcast here, because ultimately who knows at this point, right? But tell me about these, these guys, the crop of euros or the crop of players who are playing over uh, outside of the MBL guys, those, uh, the Australian league players, who, who's the one guy let's just, we'll keep it a little tight. Who's the one guy who you think is going to have the biggest impact in this draft from, from that crop of guys. Yeah, I guess it's gotta be Denny. I'm not the biggest fan. 
I think it's very possible or even likely that my bulls take him at number four. And if this <laughs> was the previous front office of Paxson and Foreman, I would be pissed. But I'm going to give the new guy, Arturis Karnaschovas, the benefit of the doubt. And like I said, I've learned some humility going through the draft process uh, over the course <laughs> of time. So what do I know? I don't. I, Denny's the guy I'm most worried about being wrong about. Because <laughs> I'm not super high on him. But I, you know, smarter people than me like him. You can also see the argument for him. I guess here's the argument for him. He, like, doesn't have any standout skills. I think he's stuck between a three and a four defensively. I think that his shooting is a major question mark. If he can't make a free throw, how is he supposed to make a three? I think he's viewed as a creator, but he's not a primary creator. He's a secondary creator. So then in the half court, what's he going to be able to do if he can't shoot? That's my sort of thought process on it. At the same time, he has no apparent holes in his game. He's, like, pretty okay at everything. You know, he pretty much is fine and everything. No mm-hmm. big holes, no big strengths. Got it. Solid across the board, good size, seems like a pretty smart player, uh, is aggressive going to the basket. Maybe, you know, there's people who think he's going to be a much better shooter than he's shown thus far in his career. He's His highlights shooting the ball off the dribbler, like really impressive. It's like, hmm. this guy's a non-shooter and he's hitting like six step back threes, but the numbers don't really bear it out. Uh, so he's the guy I'm most worried about being wrong on in this class. I think that, you know, in a draft where it's not very good, maybe you just take the guy who seems like he's going to be solid. I guess my thought process is like, if I'm investing a top four pick in a guy, I want him to at least have all-star potential. And I don't really see that with Denny. So this is all sort of like, you know, game theory or like team building concepts. You could argue it either way. That's why, like, you know, I'm not going to say like if the Bulls draft Denny, I will not be mad about it. Whereas yep. I would have if John Paxson drafted him. But and, and then you can have Denny and Laurie, uh, which could be the most uh, ambiguous named front court. It, they could be the next curling champions or an NBA title winning front court. Uh, you know, we don't know. Denny and Laurie. It just sounds yeah, good. like, you know, we're talking about Denny, but like even Lowry, I don't. I don't think anyone knows how good Lowry Markkinen is. Both no. fans are all over the map on him. Who knows what teams around the league think of him? So, totally. yeah, I think that De- Denny's really interesting, though, for sure. Yeah. And there's definitely a scenario where we look back in this draft in five years, and it's like everyone knew Denny was going to be pretty solid. Why'd he fall? But here's the thing. He's not going to fall. I think he's going right. to go pretty high. Yep. Uh, but, yeah, he's one of the interesting guys. Last guy I'll name is Pukashevsky. We haven't talked about <laughs> – Pope yeah, we haven't. We are legally obligated to talk about him on a draft podcast. He's the most interesting guy in the draft, no doubt. I mean, in a draft okay. that sucks, take the seven footer who can pass, dribble, and shoot. Yep. He is like, I mean, me and you could like bench press twice as much as this guy, probably. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if the listeners believe us to be intimidating men, but we, yeah, we, you know, we're just guys. Uh, no, no, and no. so Pukashevsky's like really skinny and really gangly. And he's like, it's really hard to even find footage on him. He actually played in the second division Greek league, which is where Giannis is from. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, and so, like, you know, I think the team that he was on like didn't want him to go to the draft. So they kind of tried to bury him so that people wouldn't see him, but he's just seven feet tall. And he just does some remarkable wild ass stuff. Sometimes like he will try a really creative pass and transition and he will try sort of a yo, a YOLO pull up three and like, like he finds success on these things sometimes. So yeah. uh, Pukashevsky is really interesting. And I don't know. Why not, dude? Like, I, I know there's draft Twitter guys who think Pokashevsky's number one. No kidding. Who, who has a higher long-term upside than, than him? Like, yeah, yeah. Fair question. So, 
And now is some of that rub the now Jokic is no oh, they're both Serbian, right? I believe that's correct. Yeah. I think yeah. So, yeah. Is there some Jokic rub to the talented seven foot, not really known? And the obviously Jokic was a second round draft pick. How many teams regret that? Um I mean, look, I I actually watched a little bit of what I could find. You're right, man. There's very little good footage on him. Like the video is shitty. You could tell he's playing in like, you know, secondary tertiary gyms in Greece, which is not saying a whole lot. Um, but man, he is rail thin. I mean, he looks like the slender man, if you will. Uh, and look, you know, you mentioned, are we intimidating big, strong guys? No, that's Mike. That's Prada. You know, he's the enforcer on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm as a tennis player. You know, we're, 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 we're basketball, you know, nerds. Uh, so, but this guy looks like he could be hosting a podcast on Blue Wire right along with us, um, if not for the fact that he is seven feet tall. And it looks like he could grow another few inches. And he looks like that. That's the type of like a uh, youth looking, uh, you know, I guess he's 18 years old. Has him listed at 208. No, no chance he's 208, by the way. He's he's at most 190, but very interesting, man. I, I'm I'm curious where he lands because there's some teams have double picks in the teens. So he's a guy who could be your second pick in the first round if you were, I think you might have the Timberwolves picking him on your mock, your latest yeah. one. Um, not, I mean, look, if you end up with uh, a guy who you think could be your cornerstone point guard and a big who could potentially be, you know, a fit next to cat down the road, uh, that's that's an interesting first round and what might many people find to be a, a weak draft. So, um, no, this is this is great, man. I, I, I wanted to hit on one very last non-basketball related topic. You are a beleaguered, long tenured, lifelong, I should say, White Sox fan. You guys, uh, you just went through the uh, the Boylan era of Bulls basketball. And I think that one fun part about Major League Baseball is that you everybody gets to do it again. The baseball is just time as a flat circle sport. Dusty Baker gets a job. He can go away and come back and get a job. Now, one guy who I didn't think would ever get another job was, was Tony La Russa. This is a basketball podcast, limited upside on, on Blue Wire here. But it does appear the tone of the Russo was just hired. Now he might be fired by the time this podcast goes out again. Um, <laughs> but it is the White Sox, so maybe he'll get promoted again to like president or something. But any anything you want to say uh, that will be on the record here about the White Sox organization hiring a man who uh, they clearly knew in background checks was about to get. Uh, in trouble for another another DUI. I want to say another in his case. Um, another, yeah, second DUI. Because if you know if one's not bad enough, get a second. And then he pulled, according to the transcripts here, the "Do you know who I am?" and "I'm a Hall of Famer." Uh, you are where he is covering his face in embarrassment. Um, the White Sox are a team with a lot of like, good young players who could potentially be like a, a legitimately good team. They were they overachieved this year, and I think have a lot of upside for the next couple of years. What does Tony LaRusso? I say that you get like that visceral reaction. You get just two minutes of what you think and feel when that happened. It's the what? single most unforgivable sports move in <laughs> Chicago that has happened since Jerry Reinsdorf broke up the Bulls <laughs> dynasty in the late nineties. Uh, the fact that the White Sox punted all of the twenty tens. <laughs> the decade began with them having the best pitcher in baseball, the best young pitcher, Chris Sale. They yep. decided to trade him because they couldn't build a decent team around the best pitcher in baseball they trade him the red sox immediately win the world series the white sox get these young guys back you know they didn't make the playoffs since i think 2008 they finally make it this year right when baseball decides to expand the playoffs the white sox have so much sick talent i mean yep. luis robert 
uh, Yon Mankata, Eloy Jimenez. These are like blue chip guys. Ilito. Yeah, these are top Ilito, players. And it was like, right now was the moment where they, ha- I was so happy when they fired Ricky Renteria, who was a nice guy, but it's like, you can do better than that. Like, totally. We just saw the Cubs do this on our other side of town where they fired Renteria actually too. He was the yeah. manager. They hired Joe Madden. They become serious. I'm like, yes, finally it's happening. Ryan Storff's coming through for me. And Ryan Storff, could not have blown it harder for the first time. Really. I can remember he went over his GM's head and he just hired yep. his friend. He just yep. hired Tony LaRusso, who he most recently fired. in, I think 86, he was the White Sox manager in 86. Of course, LaRusso goes on to a legendary career with the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is just so awful. This would be like if the bears fired Matt Nagy to hire Mike Dick up as their head. <laughs> and the entire city is just losing their minds over this. Like no one is in favor of this besides yeah. Reinsdorf. Sure. Uh, it is a disaster in every single way. And then Larusa, it's like this, this was bad enough just based on the fact that he was super critical of Colin Kaepernick and the fact that yeah. uh, he had the pretty, it was a pretty extreme DUI 10 years ago, the first yeah. time. Well, now we get the news that like, he's the first guy to ever get a DUI in the cactus league and the grapefruit league. <laughs> There's just like, it's so unforgivable. It's so bad that, we waited this long for this moment and Jerry Reinsdorf screwed us. And here's what I'm going to say. How did Jerry Reinsdorf get rich? He was an accountant. How did this man get rich? Uh, from what I can tell, he like sort of popularized the tax shelter. So he just sort of <laughs> made rich people more money. So Jerry Reinsdorf, what have you ever done for me, dude? You've done nothing. Yeah. You're trash. Yeah. He was loyal to John Paxson and Gar Foreman for 10 years too long. He's helped rich people not pay their taxes. He bought the team after they drafted Michael Jordan from the Bulls' perspective. For the White Sox, I mean, they just will never spend any money. They're a big market team. He threatened to move the team to Florida. Jerry Reinsdorf, you suck, dude. I'm out on you. You've ruined my life to a significant extent. Fortunately, I don't, you know, what can you do, man? It's like, it's hilarious. They actually hired Tony LaRusso. Why not just hire Mike Dicka to be your baseball coach at this point? It's horrible. I'm fed up. Good what rant. You do? I'm, now I'm praying that maybe the manager doesn't really matter in baseball and we still have all these sick 22-year-old Cubans and that's yep. going to lead us. I think, it, I think it matters the about. least, the least of any sport. I think that yeah. is true. Um, but we, we shall see. I wanted to give you the floor, the space to explore your, your, your frustrations there. Uh, as the only White Sox fan that I'm friends with, I have a few, uh, a few there's Cubs fans. Like 17 of us. Yeah. General, so. It's like, there's dozens of us, like the never nudes in, uh, in Arrested Development. But uh, yeah, man, I, I find it, I find it amazing. And I also think the old boys club of sports never ceases to fail. A guy like the can still be the offensive uh, coordinator for the chiefs while someone, uh, you know, like uh, I'm trying to think Mike McCarthy can get a job and immediately fail again after having just failed with the best quarterback of a generation. So uh, never ceases to fail across all sports. There's a vacuum to be had by friendships amongst rich, rich white guys. Um, with that being said, this has been a, a very fun exploratory, uh, we call it a, a NBA draft preview. We don't know a whole lot about some of the, uh, some of the future of the NBA, what this season will look like, but the best we can do is speculate with uh, Ricky O'Donnell here, SB Nation's very own. Uh, thank you again for coming on, man. Um, feel free to plug anything you'd like here. What can we, what can we check out now uh, on SB Nation that you just did? Uh, we did a pretty cool draft app that has all cool. of the coverage from our team sites around the network. So I've been updating that. There's a lot of awesome coverage within the network every single day. I feel like every site kind of is a guy who's like their draft guy who does totally. it 
as good or better than I do, no doubt. <laughs> so there's a lot of good stuff on there. Uh, you can find, you know, individual player breakdowns. You can find team analysis. You'd find big boards. And then I did a mock draft pair with that. So you can go check out that mock draft too. I wrote 5,000 words of analysis on that just for the first round. So uh, yeah, going to be a fun week. And then I'm going to be doing live draft grades as well. <laughs> so uh, on that app, when the draft starts, it'll flip over to grades and I'll be giving my grades for each pick. So when James Wiseman goes number one overall, he's probably <laughs> going to get a D, to be honest. And maybe Wiseman will be great and I'll look stupid, but that's what we're going to do. Nice. That's the best part about going on the record and, and being a, a personality of the record, if you will, as you are. So uh, now always appreciate it. Always one of the most, uh, you know, the pods I look forward to doing. Uh, and, and again, it worked out well because Prada hates doing college basketball podcast anyhow. So I'll leave this with uh, wishing Mike a, a very uh, big congratulations and Hillary, his wife, they, uh, they, you know, on the birth of their, their second child, their baby boy, very happy for them. Uh, a big limited upside hug to Mike and his family. And uh, Ricky, thank you again for coming on. This has been the Limited Upside Podcast on Blue Wire. Have a great day.